The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Psalm, you'll often see the word Selah printed off the side. It's a, a musical term, and it's kind of like a pause. Sit there, think about this for a second. I'm going to read the beginning of Psalm 67 and notice where the Selah comes and what it makes us think about. First three verses of the psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, comma, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let's pray. Father, you teach us something in this psalm that resonates with, that is in, that is in line with where we'll be in Luke today. You are a gracious God who gives and gives and gives, who blesses. You've blessed us. You've poured out much for which we can and should be thankful. You bless us that the nations may be glad and sing for joy, knowing you that your ways may be known all across the earth. You bless us that the nations may see you and be glad in you. There's a purpose there, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to embrace that. We people in this church, we people in this nation, would you help us to embrace, to, to understand, to grab hold of, and then to run with the great truth that you bless us that others may know you. Help us to think about that and to understand it and, and to be alert to ways that we perhaps unwittingly, maybe deliberately, but probably unwittingly work against that and miss it. Would you help us today, Lord? Would you grow us? We are inclined often to rewrite that psalm. You have blessed us that we would be blessed, period. Help us to see the comma that leads on into the nations. Help us to see that this morning and to embrace it and, and to enjoy walk into that. So use your word this morning from the Gospel of Luke. Father, would you teach us again? Would you send your spirit here now to guide us to to make clear your word, to expose our hearts, to give us comfort and conviction both. Draw our attention to you. Clear away distractions, Spirit of God. Would you have your way in this room, have your way in our hearts. Those of us here who, who are yours, we long to follow you. We, we want to be faithful to you. So teach us and guide us and correct us this morning, Spirit. And those here who are not yours, Lord, would you give them desire to know you? Would you open their eyes and show them who you are and show them where life is actually found, you? Those of us in, in that situation, draw us onto you and, and save this morning, please. Teach and guide and build your people. Make this church, Lord, what you want it to be. Fan it into flame and cause it to, to be a light in the nations for you. Thank you, Lord. Guide us and teach us this morning in the name of Christ, I ask. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 12, where we find Jesus in conversation with a large crowd of assorted listeners. As we saw last week, there's a crowd pressing in, and it has people across the whole spectrum. It has people who are just kind of curious, people who are angry and who hate him. 
Pharisees and scribes, and people who were loyal followers, his disciples, all kind of crammed together there, pressing in around Jesus. And last week, he turned first to teach his faithful ones, his followers, talking to them directly, though, of course, with everybody kind of cramming in, others could have listened on, but he's talking to his followers directly and warning them, us, about, against, to watch out for hypocrisy, particularly spiritual hypocrisy. This temptation to, to, while we're around the church in one way or another, to, to act like we are full on board with Jesus, and then when we're out there in the world, to act otherwise. A spiritual hypocrisy. That's what we considered last week in verses 1 to 12. A kind of hypocrisy that when it seeps into the church, kills us. It, it ruins us because it cuts us off from God, and it, it makes it impossible to have honest relationship with other people. That's a problem that the whole world faces, but it's a problem in the church particularly. Cut off from God, we're cut off from our life. It's terrible. So be on guard against it, which means to be on guard against the fear of man. If you recall last week, that's as we elaborated on it, as we moved through the passage, that's often where this hypocrisy comes from, the fear of those out there who have power over us and if we walk or live in a certain way, they might use that power against us in a way that we are afraid of. So we act two-faced. We act like they want us to act. Fear of man. And that's what we need to guard against if we're going to guard against hypocrisy. Well, how do we get rid of the fear of man? By fearing God. Fearing God, Jesus taught to be controlled by, to have our, our vision captured by this one who is not only judge, but as the passage elaborates, also loves us dearly and calls us friend in Jesus. And his people, treasures his people, knows and regards intimately those who are his and promises to always be with us amidst difficult situations in which we are tempted to turn away. This is the God who is good, and he, as he grips our attention, we fear him, we are drawn to him, we then see the rest of the world for what it is, something not to be feared, not to be regarded, not to be responded to. That's what he taught us last week. And as he's teaching that to, to the crowd, someone in, in the large group calls out with a request, shouts out a request. And we don't know the context. Perhaps it's a trap. The Pharisees were told, beginning the, at the end of the last chapter, the Pharisees are around, lying in wait, seeking to catch him in something. So maybe they put this guy up to it, hoping Jesus will make a pronouncement about a legal matter that then looks foolish when all the details are known. That could be. On the other hand, it might be legitimate because sometimes people would ask rabbis and teachers to settle such things because they knew the law and knew it was right and Maybe it's a legitimate request. Whatever it is, we, we don't know the context, but this man shouts out a request, as we'll read about an inheritance, and Jesus sees in it a bigger issue and turns to address that for all the crowd, issuing a warning and then telling a parable to kind of flesh it out. So if I were to summarize what Jesus is getting at this morning, I'd put it in a sentence like this. So here's my main point, which I'm going to get at with two different observations, but here's the main point. We are freed from covetousness as we become rich towards God. We are freed from covetousness as we become rich towards God. That's where we're going this morning. Let me, let me read the passage. This is from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to make two observations, and as you're thinking about the structure of this, it's lopsided. The first one's longer than the second, and the first one is more about the problem. The first one is more of the, the negative, but it cannot, it doesn't, and cannot stand alone. Very often, this is how, this is how Jesus' teaching works. Elaborate on the negative, paint it, and then here's the answer. And it's not just a don't do that. Of course, that's included. It's not just a don't do that, though. It's a do do this. It's a positive in the end. That's how the sermon's built here this morning, if you're listening. Here's the first longer point. All covetousness blocks rather than brings life. All covetousness blocks rather than brings life, which is why Jesus graciously warns us about it. Tells us to be careful, to be on guard against it. Verse 15, take care and be on guard. You mean double. Take care, be on guard. It's warning us against all covetousness, which is not a word that we use in the coffee shop every day. But when we hear it, if, if you're in church and you hear that word, you probably think 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. You, you shall not covet. To covet is not just to want something, it's to want something wrongly, to desire something wrongly. To want something that isn't yours and shouldn't be, or to want something too much, or to want it out of order, so that it replaces it, it supplants something that is more important, that should be of higher priority, particularly God, or to want something for the wrong reasons, to want something wrongly, and it can be anything. The Tenth Commandment, as it is written, touches on people and, and things and animals, and then it says, or just anything that is your neighbor's. It literally can be, we can covet anything. It can be completely broad. But in the passage, this, this text this morning moves us in the direction of what we might call wealth. Crops and goods and money and possessions. So I'm, I'm going to leave off talking about things like, like people and reputations and whatnot and, and move instead in the direction of, of wealth and possessions. So I'm going to use the word greed some because that's another way you could translate this word. Covetousness could also be translated greed, greediness. You use kind of those words interchangeably. And he warns us against all sorts of covetousness, all sorts of greedy, improper desiring of wealth, the love of money and goods. Wanting it in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons, greed. All sorts. Usually, particularly if I use that word greed, we think of greed as associated with wealthy people. Rich people seeking out and gathering in more and more and more money and goods and piling it up and taking it from others, often illicitly, with a mean, with a hard heart. Amassing more than they need. And that is a form of greed, sure. Wanting and seeking, coveting. Things that aren't yours, that you don't need. Working to amass more. But we often think rich people are greedy. Rich people covet and the story that Jesus told is about a rich man whose land produced plentifully. So perhaps that's right. Kind of in line with that. However, all sorts. Something in the story points out Jesus heard a man shout out a request and thought of coveting. He doesn't know anything about the man. 
But the man shouts out a request along the lines of justice. Tell him to give me what is mine. Divvy up the inheritance. Assuming, of course, the man thinks it's been divided improperly, I should get something more. Tell him to fix that. Tell him to correct it. Tell him to make it right. He demands my share, and Jesus sees coveting in it. Which should make us think about something. Perhaps it's because of the election recently, but my mind's gone on. When I, when I thought about this, and I thought of all sorts of coveting, I thought of politics. And I thought of two different camps. Maybe you'll hear the two ends of a political spectrum here. Both, both need to think about this for a second because the man calls out for justice. Now, is justice good? Yep. Necessary? Uh-huh. Critical? Indeed. But Jesus hears the call for justice and says, watch out for coveting. And that should alert us to the fact that both ends, both those who demand forced redistribution of wealth, who demand that the wealthy pay their share. Which end of the spectrum is that? And those who demand that the government keep its hands off my money. Which end of the spectrum is that? Both are making an argument about what's right, about what should be, and both should be alerted. Perhaps Jesus would hear you say that and think, that reminds me of coveting. That reminds me of greed. Again, is there justice to be involved in it somewhere? Yes, that's not the point right now. Consider in that both ends, both can be included under all sorts of coveting, not just the wealthy billionaire who rips off people and won't pay a living wage, but also the ripped off person who's angry about it and demands what's his. Because coveting is not about what you have in the bank. It's about an attitude in the heart. It's not just about, have I been successful? What do I want? The billionaire and the laborer and the ordinary farmer just minding his own business and the land prospers and the American shopper at the mall on Good Friday. All of us. All of us. And if, if coveting and, and greed are words that don't, don't really kind of resonate with you, then then maybe I could use a couple other ones that, that aren't really ways to translate this word, but are in line with the idea. Let's say materialism or consumerism. This is America. We should hear coveting and greed and materialism and consumerism and say, I think maybe, maybe he's talking about us. Maybe. Now I put that out there for you to, to think about. It, it, all sorts of I, I cannot say in any particular situation, you or you or you or you or here or this way. I don't know the details, and I, I, don't know, I don't know the details, but it's put out there because Jesus warns us to be on guard against all types of covetousness. And maybe, maybe that includes you. He warns us about this. It is a common temptation. Why is it a temptation? What's, what's tempting about it? Who says, I'm tempted to be greedy? I mean, no, we, we shun greed. We don't like that word. I don't want to covet. It's the 10th commandment for crying out loud. I don't want to be that. But there's something that Jesus warns us about here because there's a pull and there's a draw in it. What's the pull? What's the hook in it? Because it promises us something. Something we want. There's a pull in it. Even, in, even as we resist it successfully, there's still a temptation. There's still a possible allure in it. It promises to give us something that we want. This wealth. These goods. We think it will bring us life. 
Jesus alerts us to this in the warning of verse 15. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He's alerting us to that there, but that's the problem. We're tempted to think our life is found in the things that we have. That's the temptation, which he's alerting us to. We want more. We are greedy for more. We, we think about and we strive to acquire more because we think that in so doing we are acquiring life. We are shoring up life and securing life. We get a little more of that in verse 19. As this farmer in the parable talks to himself and says, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy life, we might say. Live a little. There's the good life, finally. I finally got the good life because, notice the argument here, he's arguing with himself, I finally got the good life because I have now ample goods stored up for myself. I have filled my now bigger barns. I have life. We aren't thinking about covetous greed. We're just looking for life. And the temptation, again, it's not an accusation, it's a temptation. The temptation is to think, I'm after life and that's where I can get it. In those things and what they secure for me. So if I acquire them and hold on to them, I will be able to have and then enjoy the life I deeply want. To be able to eat and drink and be merry. Which in itself is not wrong. Eat, drink, be merry is a phrase used you can go back into the Old Testament, you can find it in Ecclesiastes, where the writer of Ecclesiastes says that's, that's what we should be about. Where you can find the description of the kingdom under Solomon, which is good, all of Israel ate and drank and was happy. That, that's good. It's not wrong in itself. To have physical needs met to be at ease is not wrong. The problem is that he wants it. He wants it apart from God. To relax and take it easy. To live apart from God. To live as if, follow the thinking here. To live as if the curse never came or if as if I got beyond it finally. By my own hand. If you read through the parable, read through it closely, you might be struck by the number of references to me, mine, and I. God prospers the land and the farmer turns it to my goods and my crops and my barns and my soul and I have God's forgotten. No other people are in the picture. I have now amassed, and by what I have acquired and what I have attained and what I have protected, I can finally live above, beyond the curse. I no longer have to eke out of this thorny ground just enough to get by until tomorrow and I have to do it again. I don't have to work by the sweat of my brow and by pain to, to, to just squeak by with the existence I can live. promises deceptively, promises us life, what we want. Something that resonates inside of us and comes by a way that we want it, by my own hand, so that I don't have to trust this God I can't see to provide daily bread I don't understand. Here it is, I have it. Thank God. That's the temptation. Thank God for giving me this so that I can walk away and no longer have to live depending on God. It's the original temptation from the garden. Everything they had came from God. They knew it. And the temptation in the garden, the original temptation which still lives in us is reflected in our chasing after the wealth of the world. The original temptation, take this into your own hands and eat of it and you will be able to live independent from him. 
that was sown into us way back then and it still lives in us. There's still a little hook in that in us. We know we're made for life and we long for life and we really, really, really resonate with ways that we can get it and control it independent from him. That all seems reasonable, so we pursue it. Even Christians, now certainly the world pursues this, but even Christians, which I have to, I have to pause there and say, a, a lot of, I imagine that if I were to have a one-on-one conversation with a lot of us, a lot of you would say to me, no, I don't. What are you talking about? I am not trying to live independent from God. I totally understand what you're saying. Because I'm not trying to live independent from God. Except when I am. Do you, do you follow me on that? I'm a Christian. You're a Christian, if you're a Christian. You're a Christian. I say that only because I don't know who I'm talking to. But most of you are Christians. I'm a Christian. We, we would stand here and, and declare, sing out loud, say out loud, I'm his, he's mine, I belong to him. I don't want to live independent from him. Of course, of course. And bless God for that reality in your heart. And come on now. So often I find this thing living in me that says what I want to get is beyond the point when give me this day my daily bread has to be my prayer. Because there's no more bread. I don't like that. I want a big barn full. <sighs> then I can rest. Because I can see it with my eyes and I am prone to live by sight. Christian, I think that's where we live. It's part of what our fallenness is like. So is that, is that an accusation? No, I'm alerting us to a temptation. We so often, certainly, clearly, hold on we hold on to Jesus. I, I am not saying otherwise, but we also live then, we also live then holding on to the world. Holding on to the wealth of the world in which we trust and which we are tempted to think that's how I can live at ease if I have and hold, can provide for myself, secure myself. Jesus alerts us to this, not just because it is abstractly incorrect or wrong, because it actually blocks us from life. If I have, let's say I have one hand tightly grabbed hold of Jesus, and I have one hand kind of groping around trying to grab the wealth of the world, even in that case, that's not two hands held tightly onto Jesus. I'm at best one for two, if I make up that little scenario. I've, I've lost my, my grip. It's not as tight as it could be. It's not as close as it could be. It, this blocks us from life because it leads us to look in another place, in a place that cannot deliver. It leads us away from God, away from intimate fellowship. We live not on bread alone. We live not on what's in our bank account, but we live on communion with him. And while I am looking at and while I am chasing and while I am, am consumed with and coveting this stuff, I'm not consumed with and coveting him. It, it leads me away from life. But then, of course, we also know that the stuff that we lean on, it fails. It goes away. It perishes. And we also know that even if it doesn't perish and doesn't go away, how many times has this happened to you? The thing that you just had to have for Christmas. Man, you had to have it. You couldn't not think about it. And you searched it out online and researched it out online and researched and researched and researched and finally bought it. 
And then six months ago, you found it on the shelf in the basement collecting dust, forgotten. Oh, yeah. At one point, that thing was my life. Forgotten. Because there isn't any life there. We know that. We know that. Jesus warns us against pursuing life, trying to, to give to ourselves meaning and hope, significance, ease, rest, life of shalom, not the life of the curse. He warns us against that, not because it's wrong, but because it doesn't deliver, in fact. And because in the end, verse 20, there is a reckoning. Never mind that it leads us away from God here in this world. Never mind that it perishes. Never mind that it doesn't actually deliver what it promises. It all goes away. It stays here when we leave. In verse 20, Jesus says, you can't actually get beyond the curse completely. Dust you are and to dust you shall return. It's still binding. And this is the folly of humanity. We all live as if we're never going to die. And we are. We're going to die and leave everything here behind. Of course. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Of course, right? But honestly, that happens. We die and we leave everything that we've amassed behind and go and stand before the judge who demands our souls back from us, in fact. I gave you your very life. Give it back. Account for it. This very night, your life, your, your soul, is demanded of you. And it comes upon him suddenly. This is what awaits us all. And at that moment, we will realize that whatever life we tried to find, whatever life we tried to, to create for ourselves with the things here that, that protected us and pleased us, that's all gone. And we are left without protection before God who says, what did you do with the life I gave you? That day is coming. How will he judge you? Fool is how he judges this man who tried to create a life apart from him, who tried to create a life from the things of this world. Fool, which is the Bible's word. It's, it's a word of condemnation. It's the Bible's word for a person who lives as if there is no God. And to have fool pronounced on you at the end is devastation. Now, Christian, we have to let fool rest on us, but not too heavily, because, thank God, He's not going to call you a fool. In the language of the Bible, fool is, is a verdict. And his verdict over you is not going to be one of condemnation. He's speaking to a large crowd here. So he's, as he speaks to the world, he says, the whole world must consider the fact that you may live all of life. You, whoever you is generically. You may live all of life and at the end find fool. The, the verdict of condemnation read over you. That, that's, that's real for the world. For the Christian, thank God, he's not going to say that to you. However, what, what we should take from this is it is possible that I would live foolishly, like the fool, banking everything on something that cannot deliver. So there's still an alert, a, a warning, a, a call from Jesus. Be on guard against this. 
Don't go there. Do not seek your life in the abundance of possessions. Do not seek your life from your own hand with the stuff that you accumulate apart from God. Okay. Why not? Because it blocks you from life. Okay. Got it. That's the first, longest, negative warning. So then what do we do? How does this turn to the second? It doesn't turn. Don't do that. It doesn't. This is one of the cool, I think, the coolest things about God. When I first, when I first was taught this years ago, this, this like opened my eyes and caused me to, it kind of lit, lit a fire of thanksgiving in me that I, I did not know was possible and has been fuel in my Christian faith since. And may you get this, that God consistently, in 10 different ways, but consistently pulls us away from what we shouldn't What's a no? What's a negative? He pulls us away from that with his own lure, his own positive, his own call to blessing, his, his own lifting up of a competing joy. Don't do that. No. Uh, 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 uh. Don't do that. Yes. That's how God works with us. So what he says, ironically, is... Don't seek the riches of the world. Seek riches. Do you get the, the irony in that? Don't be greedy. Be greedy. I mean, be really greedy. Your problem is you don't covet enough. I'm trying to speak ironically here. Get it? The problem is you, you, don't, you don't lust after the right thing strongly enough. You are, you're too easily pleased with a car. Let me tell you where riches lie. That, that, that's the nature of the positive here. So here's the second point. Use abundance to become rich towards God. He tells us to become rich, to enrich ourselves. To seek after wealth, just of a different sort. So I draw this from the very last verse, which is the conclusion to the parable. Jesus tells of the land of a rich man that produced plentifully. That's, that's the parable. God showers him with blessing. The land produced plentifully. And what did he do? Well, verse 21 gives us a summary. What he did with all that was he laid up treasure for himself. The parable is a depiction of a man laying up treasure for himself, gathering in abundant possessions, thinking that now I can acquire and secure life. Laid up treasure for himself. That was his solution to the problem. How am I going to store all this grain? And I am going to store it all because it's mine. My problem is I, can't, I don't have barns that are big enough to store all this. What am I going to do? Make bigger barns. Because it's mine and I'm going to keep it. No mention of God, no mention of others. What's supposed to happen here? The positive instead of the negative. He was supposed to, we're supposed to, a person should, instead of laying up treasure for himself, lay up treasure toward God should use what he's been given to lay up treasure indeed toward God actively and intentionally to think of here I have resources delivered to me how can I enrich myself in the eyes of God how can I enrich myself towards kingdom purposes how can I use this opportunity actively use it to make myself everlastingly rich How would he do that? Well, there's a little hint. I mean, perhaps it's obvious, but there's a little hint in verse 20. 
in the statement of judgment. And now these things that you have prepared, amassed for yourself, well, now's who are they going to be? They're going to be somebody else's now. They're passing through your hands onto somebody else anyway. There's a little hint in that, but maybe it's already obvious. Given this, supposed to use it to amass for himself wealth towards God, what should he do? Give it away for the sake of the kingdom. Give it away for the sake of the kingdom. That's not hard to say. It's really hard to do. Give it away for the sake of the kingdom. I don't know everybody who's here, but I do know some people who are here, and I, and I know some of you are far more attuned to this than I am. You do give for the sake of the kingdom. Amen. But I think that if I'm going to do justice to this passage, I still need to talk to you too. And, and the rest of us and me, that all of us, all of us need to constantly be alerted to this temptation and constantly have held before us the, the, the counterbalance. In fact, the, the weapon that, that destroys this temptation, the call to give away what we are tempted to lean on and trust in. What he calls us to do is use wealth, use what he gives us, not to get away from him, like we're tempted to do. I, I want enough that I don't have to trust you for my daily bread. Not to use it to get away from, but to use it to draw near to. To say, here's what you have delivered into my hand. Father, for what purpose? I, I'm a distributor. To where? I'm called to follow you into your kingdom mission. Given this, it must be with this. How so? To use wealth to love God, to use wealth to honor God, to use wealth to lift up his name, and in loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and wealth, to then love my neighbor as myself with what he has given me. To be rich towards God, to give our wealth for his name. That's what cuts the heart out of greed, generosity. And it destroys coveting. As we fix our eyes on the first commandment and have no other God before him and order all of our life in the service of his name, including what he's given us. The stuff in our hands. This is the challenge to us because we are wealthy people. It was already prayed earlier. We're, we're the, everybody knows this, of course, we're the most wealthy nation that's ever existed. Yeah, yeah. For many of us, for me, I don't know where that, how that hits you, but when I look at, at my own budget book, when I look at my own budget book, I don't feel like the wealthiest person who's ever lived. So, Let's be honest about that. We're the wealthiest nation that ever lived. It costs a ton of money to live here. I heard somebody preach about this one time, and, and he said that in his younger days, he thought, I, this sort of a call to give away my wealth means that I shouldn't indulge in luxuries. So he went to rent a car that didn't have a CD player in it, and he couldn't do so because there aren't any. And he couldn't rent a wagon, because there aren't any. It's life in America. He couldn't build a hut with no windows in it. The zone, zoning laws don't allow it. It's life in America. It's expensive to live here. Sure, okay. 
Let's set that aside and say, on the other hand, not from don't, but from do. If you were to look at your budget and say, I want to use my money to make myself wealthy. And I reckon that there is a day when everything that I'm buying and putting in my garage is going to stay in the garage. I want to have something to take with me. How, what can I do? What can I do? How can I spend this money in a way that builds the kingdom, which might involve a church in Ukraine and might involve a gift for your spouse? Both. It might involve putting something under the Christmas tree as a way of building the kingdom, as a way of strengthening your marriage. Yep. And it might involve you agreeing not to put anything on the Christmas tree and said to buy something at that church in Ukraine out on the bulletin board out there. I don't know. God does not work with us via law and restriction. Here's what you must do and must not do. Instead, he says, watch out. Your hearts will be pulled. You'll be tempted to think that's life. And instead, enrich yourself. How? Walk with me and spend your money. Whoa, that's way, way, way too free. He's training you to be an heir in the kingdom. He's given you his spirit. Walk with him. Spend your money. Know that also. If you walk with him and spend your money, desiring, Lord, what should I do? How should I... How should I best invest what you have given me for the sake of your kingdom out there and right here in my own living room? How should I best invest that? You walk with him and you realize, and this is the only way you can actually do that if you realize, that he has already, the wealthy one has already made himself poor to deliver to you every rich, riches that you can imagine. You have an inheritance in the kingdom. You're good. Really. So if you give away too much, you're fine. And you are his beloved child. His hand over you says beloved and honored and treasured friend. So if you give away too little, you're fine. Freedom. Freedom. This is the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus is to set us free. Not free from him, but free to be with him. And free to use, use the life that he's given us apart from, from legislated code, guideline. Free. For you, different than me. And for me on Tuesday, different than me on Wednesday. Filled with the Spirit and sensitive to him a child and an heir, my future secured, your future secured. You have the riches of heaven assured to you. You can give this life away. In that spot, what he says to you, many of you probably know this quote. This, this is... Uh, Guy's name slips my mind. The missionary in South America who died, Jim Elliott. Thank you. I think somebody said that. The, you give away what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. That's wisdom. And it has very little guideline in it. How much? To whom? When? Walk with me. Spend your money. But do so not because God is hanging over you some sort of sentence, but because God is holding out in front of you some sort of treasure. Enrich yourself. Enrich yourself in a way that actually lasts. Enrich yourself in a way that will, will actually bring real life to you as you in communion with God, not separate from him, but in communion with God, walk through life enjoying what he's given you, seeing his hand at work through you, and reckoning day by day by day, I'm going to be rich, I'm going to be rich, I'm going to be rich. That's the way to live. That's what God's delivered to you in Jesus. Give thanks. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you for the alert. Thank you for the, the warning that our hearts are often tricky, slippery. And we so frequently are drawn off to seek a life apart from you where we don't have to trust you day by day by day. Thank you for the alert to that and the alert that wealth can provide a great, a great um, deceptive landmine to our lives. And thank you for giving us a great investment portfolio. Something to put our money into that pays off big time forever. Thank you for that. Thank you for forgiveness for our failures. Thank you for your spirit who abides in us and leads us day by day. Thank you for being so good. Would you enable us to enrich ourselves in ways that honor you and bless others? Do work like that in us, individually and corporately. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.